0: What's up, family? You are tuned into Law & Disorder, a podcast where we expose the cracks in our system, agitate for resistance, and collectively build a new world in which all of us can thrive. This is Resistance in Residence, where we profile artists using their gifts to change the world. This week's featured artist is award-winning trombonist, scholar, music educator, and activist Angela Wellman. Angela, thank you so much for joining us, and welcome to the show.
1: Well, it is my absolute pleasure to be here and thank you for this uh this invitation i'm I'm honored I've been listening to you for a while Kat, and I'm like, "Hey, I get to talk to cat
0: <laughs> Yes, we Yay. do not do that nearly enough um <laughs> And and absolutely, you know, thrilled to be able to uplift all that you do, Angela. We start these usually by asking folks about how they became the brilliant folks they are. So I want to start with a little bit about little Angela, and like where you grew up, what was your family like, you know, when did you discover music, all that good stuff.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, I am. I hail proudly from Kansas City, Missouri, heart of America, land of. Uh, bebop charlie parker count basie uh, you know that music that put the swing into jazz Um, that said i was born into music i was born into a musical family my grandparents and parents and many of my aunts and uncles and then my immediate family my brothers we all um or musicians of some sort or another um i grew up in kansas city listening to my grandfather and his stride piano playing in the style of like james p johnson and those early cats from the early you know 1900s my grandmother was a singer my even though she didn't perform professionally she uh was a domestic engineer raising nine children and then being a fabulous grandmother to 70 71 uh, grandchildren that her nine children bore Uh, my mother was a civil servant by day and a professional jazz vocalist by night working and singing at Uh, the top of the Hilton Inn in Kansas City, which was at the time not a place where black folk could go and enjoy a meal and my mother's beautiful voice. Um, But she sang there. Um, It was one of their preeminent hotels and she would work 40 hours a week at the Army Hometown News Center at 10th and Hardesty in Kansas City, Missouri, typing um, news stories about, uh, like she said, the boys overseas um, and sending them to their hometown news uh, um, outlets, uh, keeping them apprised of how their soldiers were doing. And then at night, she would come home and cook dinner and you know, hang out with me a little, do my homework. And then around 6.30, she'd start getting dressed to go and sing. And she sang six nights a week and worked 40 hours a day, a week. Um, so, you know, I watched her do that and watching that black woman do that in the early 60s, I didn't think much about it then i just wanted her to be home i missed her you know but um she did what she had to do as an artist she had to sing and my father was a pianist um they tried working together but that didn't work out too well (laughs) but he he was a, a serviceman a career man in in the air force and so he was rarely home but everywhere he was he always had you know, the Lionel Wellman Trio, wherever he was, and they performed at the, the the commissioned officers and the non-commissioned officers' clubs and about the cities, wherever he was stationed. My uncle, um, Eddie Baker, is the founder of something called the Charlie Parker Foundation, and he subsequently created the Charlie Parker Academy of the Arts, which is where I have my inspiration for the Oakland Public Conservatory of Music, which I'm happy to say this year will is 17, 18 years in existence. Um, wow. I grew up in watching him create that community institution and people that he knew like uh, Bill Cosby, Count Basie, Ella Fitzgerald, Dizzy Gillespie, uh, uh, Zoot Sims, you know, a bunch of cats, uh, Max Roach. They were all supporting him in the creation of that place. I have this fabulous, iconic photo of him with those people I just mentioned right there in my hometown, standing out in front of the Charlie Parker Academy um, at the gra- at the opening of... Um, the, of the center. It was like a 10,000 square foot space that he had classrooms and recording places and, you know, uh, uh, concert halls and such. And I started studying there when I was 11 and then grew up to actually just to start teaching. And then I moved to California, you know. Um, so I started playing trombone when I was um, in sixth grade and played, and started playing drums as well uh, a few years later and pretty much started playing professionally drums at, with a, some local gospel groups in Kansas city. Um, the McClellan acre singers, they had a male group and a, a female group, and they had a female band for the male group and a male band for the female, you know, group, that kind of thing, which was ahead of their times really at, at that time in the, in the mid seventies. Um, so I played uh, drums with them, and then I had an opportunity to start playing trombone only while I was in, in uh, junior college. Uh, they needed some more people to play in what they at that time called the stage band. We now call them jazz bands. But he's there, they're like, who who in here plays? And I raised my hand and said, I, I do. I had been playing drums, but I knew if I said that, I wasn't going to have an opportunity to play. There's only one drummer in the band. But there's four trombones so i said trombone mind you cat i hadn't played trombone in probably three or four years i didn't even have one but i started i went out and got one and i changed my major after being in that band i remembered what the camaraderie and the absolute um joy and just just that space of of, of blackness, you know, in mus- musical blackness, you know, that I experienced. Um, I changed my major from med- medic- medicine, I was in pre-med to music and and then joined, there was the there was a, a government program called the CETA program. I don't know if you know that the Comprehensive Employment Training Act. And so it was very timely because it covered our um, expenses, paid our our college tuition and books and all of that. And we got a check (laughs) and health insurance and all we had to do was play music all day. And it was the program was um, one where, uh, you know, elder, it was a training program. And so you learned from, from elder people who did what you do. And so it was kind of unique and interesting in that way. So a lot of the early cats, like cats who went to school with with Count with uh Charlie Parker and 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 who played in Count Basie's band and 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 uh you know Mary Lou Williams, a lot of just those early jazz pioneers, those cats were our teachers. So half the band were them and the other half were, were Were us youngsters coming up, right? And and that was my job for like four years. And after that, I ended up going to Venezuela for a year and played in an all women's band down there. Man, the rest is history. After that, I came back (laughs) and I moved to California and just was playing trombone. Yeah, that's what I was doing. Yeah, professionally and touring. playing with bands and all kinds of stuff.
0: Sounds absolutely amazing. Oh, that Um, was fun.
1: (laughs) It sounds like it was fun. Uh, I want to hear more about that that
0: year in Venezuela. Ooh, Um, got something for you on that, boy. (laughs) That's woo. (laughs) Mm. Uh, I have to come have some tea. Um, Mm -hmm. and get the tea. Um, (laughs) you mentioned earlier the the Oakland Public Conservatory of Music, of which you are the founder and director. Can you talk about when you founded it, why you founded it, and what kind of programming takes place there?
1: So, you know, let me answer the first one. When we opened our doors in 2000 and in December of 2005, the first weekend of December, 2005, um, and had a whole weekend of celebration and music and a little, classes like many classes to give people an opportunity uh, to experience the assortment of offerings we were um, going to launch that pri- that uh, year the next the next year in, in uh, January and of school for everyone all ages little babies all the way to elders um, and uh, why So the why is um, I was trained in predominantly white music institutions uh, after high school, college, the Conservatory of Music in Kansas City, a part of the University of Missouri in Kansas City. And then um, after that, I went to... I, as I mentioned earlier, I was a performing professional musician for a good 30 years before I decided, oh, I'm not making any money. I don't have any... I don't have a... I'm not paying into... Uh, what's that check that you get when you're, when you're old? <laughs> I'm not paying into any government programs mm, that... Social that, Security. Social Security, now. <laughs> <yeah. laughs> and uh, I said, oh, I, I need to to get a a real job. (laughs) Oh Lord. And so I went to graduate school thinking that with the master's degree, I could start to get a real job and start paying into social security and get some retirement fund and all of that. And I went to the Eastman School of Music and got a master's degree. But I don't have much money now than I did as far as social security goes. (laughs) (laughs) Thinking that, that, you know, I fell for the okey-doke on that one. Let me just put it like that. But I I found it, I I realized after that graduate school experience as well that, you know, out of, for example, a school with 275 (coughs) music students in the undergraduate and graduate programs, only 15 of them were African-American, you know, and in the graduate program, only five of us were African-American. Four of whom were black men and one woman, and I'm like, something's really wrong with this. First of all, American music is black music, you know, um, you know, music from our diaspora, music born and shorn from, you know, you know, our our blood, sweat, and tears, and 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 all the things. What is the problem that when we go to these, you know, these mainstream music institutions to study, we're studying <clears throat> You know, not even the music of all of Europe was really lifted up too, because they got their, you know the N words too. You know what I mean? They just have different names. But you know, the music of Northern Europe is more lifted up in those in those institutions. And I'm and I'm thinking this is just not this is so wrong because our music is ancient and our ways of passing it on and studying and all of this are ancient and we don't have opportunities to even delve into who we are because our music holds everything we need to know about who we are we will find it in our music and so um, having been teaching in schools in oakland and watching year after year the the diminishing numbers of black students in music programs i mean today it's absolutely egregious what you can see in, in. in in the Oakland public schools and their music programs and and I will attest to this till my day to the day I die of how much I feel like it is such a hatred for black children and an absolute disrespect that ways are not made to ensure that at least their numbers in the music rooms equal their numbers in the school in general right but so that's much of the reason behind the the creation of the public conservatory music public, public meaning the people, conservatory meaning, you know, high expectations, which in our culture there always has been um, a, a desire for higher, high, higher education and higher learning um, with the masters. And so um, the public conservatory um, was founded to, to do just that, to to create an environment of rigor much of what you would find if you were born into a family of malian you know jalis you know there was an expectation that you would learn the history that you would learn the instruments and you would learn to tell the stories through the music and you would be a great technician and all the things. So yeah, that's that's pretty much why I, I decided and I wanted to do this for years to create a place where more black children particularly and then black girls could have similar experiences as I have, you know, and then they would have access to, first of all, that part of themselves, that ancient part of themselves. And then also, heck, you know, the music industry and black music is what feeds the industry more than anything. I call black music, the the music that the world dances to. Um, You think about salsa and reggae and, you know, uh, jazz and, and blues and, tango and and samba, all of that was created from the hearts and souls and lives of those enslaved African people, right? And it is such a, it is the greatest gift, as W.E.B. Du-, du Bois said, the, the the greatest gift to to Africa, to to America, excuse me, is the, the music of the at the time he said Negro. And, and that is so true. So that's at the heart of the Public Conservatory. And as I studied more and more and realized I need to be more courageous in what I'm doing, I dropped people of color. I emphasize blackness in um, uh, the the telling of what we do and say that the Public Public Conservatory centers the African-American role in the development of American musical culture and identity. You can come here and study Bach, but you can also study James Brown. You know, right there, from from Brown to Bach, I say, and everything else.
0: I'd I'd like to know. You you give so much time and energy. I know running the conservatory. Talk about carving out time uh, to create and engage in your own craft, and a little bit about your creative process. Mm. You know. Oh,
1: <laughs> over the last 10 years i've been diligently focused on completing a dissertation with which i'm going to be finished within about 3 weeks totally you know but through that time i've had to figure out how do i keep playing how do i you know cuz when you play an instrument or when you sing your bones vibrate Literally, and there's a certain type of um, synchronization that happens on a, at a biological level, and we when we don't have access or we don't have access to something to maintain that, it can really cause a true imbalance in one's spirit. As a as a performing musician, for example, I have felt that, and I experience it on the regular. So just to just keep myself balanced, I'll. Um, cuz i don't have a lot of time to go out and play the trombone you know with others right now i'll just play some long tones and just so i can get my 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 bones vibrating and and play a mel- play some you know some some uh a ballad or something like that to just kind of keep myself in touch some scales and things like that um my creative process through the years really um has evolved from First of all, the thing that I learned from the elders who, who who taught me first was to learn the language, right? And so once I know the language, then I'll, I'm able to t- tell a story. And, and the more of the language that I have a handle on, then the more um, um, robust, I should say, my story will be when I stand up to play or when I compose. But the first part is to learn the language. And I'm constantly learning you know, you know, learning new languages after learning the, you know, the the traditional like, you know, Western Gregorian or whatever they call it, scales and those kinds of things. Then branching out and learning scales from other other countries and other cultures, Indian scales and carna you know, those like Carnatic scales and and, and the scales of like the instruments from, from Africa, which are mostly grounded in a pentatonic world. Um, and then taking and, and just playing around with those and listening more than anything to the existing melodies in my head. And then the, what I learned as I, um, as I became more um, proficient on the trombone, for example, that I was able, the better I could play that instrument, you know, then the more I would be able to um, articulate the, the melodies that I was hearing. You know, and that was a lot of the cause of, of frustration of developing players. They want to play something, but their technique is not to where they can actually access something that's really of a high or higher order consciousness, right? Okay. And so, um, yeah, um, also a real big part of my creative process is collaboration. Um, When I spoke about the language, I love being in a room with other musicians who also have a handle on the language. And then we could just sit there and talk, you know, talk through the music. And that thing that we inherited from our African musical um, 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 heritage is that call and response, you know, and just to converse musically. And I like being in environments with people who who. Who are who are you know great technicians because then we can really you know have a have a very interesting conversations you know musically. Um, and lately, I've also in my study of our heritage. Um, in in about about 13 years ago, I started playing banjo and uh, studying banjo from an African uh, perspective to learn and understand. Uh, the, the roots and the what is the what are the ancient African voices that are in that instrument that was created by enslaved Africans in the the Caribbean <laughs> honestly the, so the banjo is an American you know or this New World quote unquote um, creation and it was important to me to understand that um, voice as well uh, I have six banjos. <laughs> you know, and wow. I was like, "What does one person need six banjos for?" Well, the reason is because there was an evolution of the banjo, um, and so um, I have uh, a couple of gourd banjos, which is the first one, and then I move into like the minstrel banjo, which was played on the on the on the minstrel stages of blackface and all of that. To understand that, and uh, and now currently doing a reclamation of that. Of that music, um, and 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 that whole process, and a creative process I have when I'm studying these banjo tunes, is those cats learned those 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 blackface. They call them the Ethiopian delineators. They learned those musics from. They learned those musics from from African people. And so they wrote it down. And so a a part of another part of my own creative process is to to play that music as they've written it, but then search for the blackness in it, because the way they play it and the way that it's written is not the way they heard it. I know that because, you know, you can tell that and the difference between listening to like Honest, I'm going to say this is over the airways. But black folks play jazz different than white folks, and you know you can feel it. It's just a different kind of different thing. So I know that those banjo tunes sounded different than than what I hear. You know when I hear the white banjo players. So I I seek the the, the blackness in it, and the the creative process is one that I bring to uh, my own um, interpretation of of those musics, which only I play, you know, so when I record them, no one hears it played like that
0: by anyone but me, because it's it's my it's my it's my interpretation. All right, Angela, Wellman, we are going to leave it there. Thank you so much for joining us this uh, this morning on Law Disorder.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: Family, you are listening to Law & Disorder. I'm your host, Kat Brooks. This is Resistance in Residence, and this week's feature artist is award-winning trombonist, scholar, music educator, and activist, Angela Wellman. You've been listening to Law & Disorder, a podcast where we expose the cracks in our system, agitate for resistance, and collectively build a new world in which all of us can thrive. That's it for this episode, family. Law and Disorders produced at KPFA. That's listener-supported radio on the Pacifica Network. The show is produced by Jesse Strauss and hosted by me, Cat Brooks. Our theme music was composed by Steve Raskin of Fort Knox Five. Our Resistance and Residence theme music was composed by Jesse Strauss. If you like what you heard, please follow us on social media at Law and Dis and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. You can also find our content live at 8 a.m. weekdays on KPFA. That's 94.1 FM in the Bay Area. Our show and all KPFA's programs are funded exclusively by you, the listeners. If you're in a position to support us, please donate today at kpfa.org. Take care of yourself and take care of each other. We all we got, fam.